0: If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash Green Dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work.
1: The key question is, what can we do as far as what level of economic activity again can we perform as a world where we stay indefinitely sustainable. And uh, it's, again, about right now, You know, economists think it's about 50 percent of where we are.
0: What exactly would a truly sustainable lifestyle with seven billion people on Earth look like? And why has population growth been the elephant in the room in our discussions around lessening our overall environmental impact? That's just the tip of the iceberg of what you'll hear today. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons and Buns, a community where people meet every day to trade things like clothing, houseplants, furniture, and art. You can check it out first by downloading the app Buns, spelled B U N Z, on your smartphone, and I'll tell you more later. For now, to our conversation with Terry Spar, the documentary filmmaker behind 8 Billion Angels, an environmental activist, and the executive director of Earth Overshoot, which is a nonprofit working to make ecological limits central to all personal and public decision-making through targeted education and advocacy. Specifically, his focus has been shedding light on the role of human consumption and population as the primary drivers of environmental destruction. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast for creatives, visionaries, and entrepreneurs dreaming of a sustainable future. Thank you for bringing your light. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: We'd go up to Maine every summer as a family, and we'd go and visit these Bald eagles nest with a band, you know with a family every year, and it was great to see them and it was fun to watch the you know eagles get fed uh, feed their babies and One year it was about five years uh, later I was probably about six or seven years old. The nest was empty, and I asked my father what had happened. he told me d d t and you know as a seven year old walked me through what d d t was and the chemical that was used in the you know in the, in the uh, insecticides to you know spray on the fields and it eventually got its way down the chain to the, the eagles that were eating the fish that had it in them, and it would destroy their eggs or not allow the eggs to be you know, strong enough to, to get to gestation. So uh, it made me think at that early age that it's incredible how we impacted the eagles and almost basically uh, annihilated them. Mm. And it's been one of the few stories uh, of recovery that uh, you know we, we've seen uh, amongst all the animals that are you know out there in the wild.
0: Well, I'm sure it's been a journey for you, but I'd love to hear how you came to focus on population growth as the upstream root cause of our varied environmental issues. Because like you've said before, this is really the elephant in the room and something that's not talked about as much as some of our other proposed solutions. So what was your train of thought or learning journey that led you to this focus?
1: i got a master's in government administration, and I've spent a career in the business world, Kamea. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I understand how critical it is to you know measure those things that you treasure. Because, you know, by measuring them, you can you can manage more effectively. Mm-hmm. And in measuring our global economic activity and its impact on the earth. You know, I researched a whole bunch of different organizations and various studies that do a pretty good job at assessing what you know is called our biocapacity, which is you know what the world can provide us. You know, it's the living systems, it's plants, you know, the wood, the water, the fisheries, and you know, and our demand as a species on nature, and our impact on the planet is really a factor of the number of us and what is called our affluence. You may be familiar with that equation i equals p times a and our impact on the planet you know is based on the number of us and and, and that affluence and that, that affluence is essentially our income and our assets it's what you know you and i earn and the wealth that we build and what we do with that which is we buy goods and services that you know we use and those goods and services are made up of basically materials and and energy and and the energy that's used to deliver them to us and to make them and and, and that's what you know our affluence gets us as far as those materials. So when I studied that impact, you know it was clear that we were overshooting Earth's carrying capacity. You know its ability to provide us those resources yearly without depleting them, uh, as well as handling our wastes. You know whether it's through the land, the waterways, and the air to be able to manage all the waste that we we, we create. So you know you may have heard this before. I don't know if you have, but uh, most environmental scientists and studies state that we currently need about 1.7 Earths to live sustainably. Have you ever heard that figure mm-hmm. before? Yeah. So, uh, and you know, that actually comes uh, from a, different, a bunch of different uh, places, but one place is the Global Footprint Network, and uh, they're a really good good you know data data gathering source. And the problem is that it doesn't really help you know me understand my individual impact. So, you know, I went a little further with that 1.7 Earths. I said so you know, since we don't have 1.7 Earths and we only have one Earth, you know, the real question we have to ask ourselves is, you know, what size and scope of global economic activity is sustainable indefinitely? And, and, you know, I spoke to a lot of economists and environmental scientists, and they all come in and say, we, you know, we have to basically live about, you know, on half of the economic activity if we're going to allow for the abundance and diversity of life to flourish. Mm. So, you know there are different ways to measure that activity. You know some organizations, as I said, like Global Footprint Network, they calculate it by you know land use per person. Each person uses so many acres or so many hectares of land. Other scientists and economists use CO2 emissions. You know what is each person's individual you know attribution towards the emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere. And uh, another one is measuring our global GDP, or you know our, our global world product, our economic activity as a world, and that's about $85 trillion annually. And, you know, scientists and economists agree we must reduce that activity by half in order to be sustainable. We're looking at roughly a 42 to $43 trillion economy. And if you divide that by the number of people out there, which is about 7.7 billion people, you know, we each need to live off roughly $5,500 a year. Imagine that $5,500 a year. That's the equivalent of living in a small one-room home with basically minimal plumbing and electricity for maybe a few small appliances, know, like a refrigerator and a small stove. It's foregoing any central heat or air or air conditioning or hot water. It's having basically maybe three sets of clothes and no washer or dryer. It's uh, eating only a plant-based local diet, and it's never driving in a car or flying in an airplane. Mm -hmm. That's the reality of a sustainable lifestyle for 7.7 billion people if we're all gonna do this equitably. Pretty incredible, right?
0: That's powerful. I feel like we often talk about our, our consumption rates when we talk about sustainability, but the other part of this equation is, of course, the number of people that we have on the planet. Because if an entire state, for example, had only 1,000 people, well, they can pretty much use their resources A lot more freely. But then there comes a tipping point where its citizens would have to start thinking about their consumption rates in conjunction with how many other people are living in a similar manner. And I feel like that's where we're at currently globally, just needing the context of uh, population as it relates to our finite number of resources when talking about sustainability. And oftentimes I feel like products that are made in quote-unquote eco-friendly manners today are labeled, for example, a sustainable t-shirt. But to me, that statement in of itself doesn't really make sense because sustainability requires context, right? So a single item can't be considered sustainable because we have to also think about how much of this is made, at what rate, purchased by how many other people, and how often. So I guess Mm. my question is, do you feel like in, in our current dialogues, we're not talking about the context enough and we're only focusing on the numbers?
1: I think that's certainly a a valuable way to contextualize uh, that question. I think one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, what is the definition of sustainability? And uh, I look at it as, you know, uh, sustainability to me is, is the ability for a species to survive in perpetuity without depleting the resources nor damaging the environment or the ecosystem in which it lives. As a global population, we certainly are not doing that. You know, we've we've passed the tipping point of living sustainably back in the 70s. Most most environmental scientists agree. But if you uh, look at it from a country to country basis, probably about two one third of the countries out there, you know, are living sustainably. They have enough bio capacity, enough you know natural assets that they're living off of those assets and underneath, uh, you know, below the carrying capacity. But the remainder of the world's not. So it does vary. And, you know, going back to my analysis of what it is to live sustainably as an individual, you know, there's, you know, the 7.7 billion people of us, about three and a half billion people are living above that threshold. And in every poll that I've taken of every audience that I've spoken with, not one of them has raised their hand to say that they would commit to giving up their lifestyle to the extent needed to live sustainably you know, plastic bags and straws, they might give up that. But to live off a lifestyle with $5,500, I haven't seen somebody raise their hand yet. And the crazy thing is, if you look at the 4 billion people who, and I've interviewed a lot of them for, you know, our film and our travels that we've done, you know, who are living below that threshold, they're fighting every day to move up the economic ladder and live a better lifestyle marked by consumption of goods and services. And they should have every every right to. So, you know, it's, it's very difficult to reduce the consumption to the level needed to live globally in a sustainable, you know, world.
0: Well, to help build awareness for all of these things, you started your nonprofit, Earth Overshoot, and decided to also translate your message into a film called 8 Billion Angels. Can you share a little bit more about your work at Earth Overshoot, as well as how you've distilled this message into the format of a film?
1: Sure. and it's a. Uh, I've, I've always gravitated to sort of being a big picture person, Command, mm-hmm. kind of, you know, viewing everything from like 30,000 feet up, observing trends, you know, seeing uh, systemic issues and, you know, delving into their root causes by continually asking, you know, the question, why? You know, why this? Why that? And, you know, over the past 40 years, as I said, I've seen massive changes occurring, read and studied biosystems and uh, human interaction and behavior and you know, recognize the immutable connection between our growth and our numbers and the impact it's having on our planet. So you know, my next thought was, how do I redirect and refocus the narrative to address the, the truth about this predicament and you know, also offer solutions that are scientifically proven to be both practical, feasible, and effective? And I, I felt producing a documentary just, just doesn't admire the problems, but actually kind of leads people down an authentic path to both the uh, more sustainable future in a healthier society was probably the best uh, route to take.
0: We'll be sure to link to your website in our show notes so we can stay updated on this. But I'd love to dive deeper into the topic of population growth and would love your help to paint a picture of where we're at currently. So what do we know about our current growth rates and what are some future projections that we can keep in mind to conceptualize these numbers with?
1: Well, obviously we are growing and most of the the, the Population growth rate is is, is is in the you know the developing world, but frankly the problem is the developed world because you know we are the biggest perpetrator of environmental damage, and it's frankly even more important that the promotion of smaller families become a social norm in the developed world more so than even in the you know uh, developing world. Small families, I think, need to become the symbol of you know parents who really care about the climate and about the well-being of future generations. So it's an it's a interesting dynamic where uh, you have the population growth more in the developing world, but the, re, you know, the, the issue is uh, certainly universal, but it's frankly significant concern to the developed world because we consume as a per, per person, we consume and, and use many, many more resources than the developing world.
0: Mm. What are some key factors that determine a country or even a city or a community's birth rate?
1: United Nations has a index called the you know, H- HDI, Human Development Index, and what you uh, tend to see is as a country goes from being a, a developing country to a, a fully developed country, it goes through you know these these stages of, of improvements, and 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 they measure it a bunch of different ways. But one of the things that we we see is that uh, countries that focus on providing you know education, uh, family planning, health care, you know, all the, the, the sort of quality of life benefits and and create a culture of equity and, and frankly women's empowerment, uh, what you find is a, a declining fertility rate. Uh, because when, you know, women are in control of their lives, when they are empowered, when they are educated, they tend to have uh, fewer children, they tend to space them more. And as a result, uh, women and children, their health typically improves, they have lower mortality rates they you know, tend to be uh, certainly uh, there's much less poverty in those nations. And we oftentimes see greater financial security and greater savings per person. And and uh, one of the beautiful things is their, their economic and educational opportunities actually expand when you see a lowering in fertility. Best of all, and I think this is what's interesting with those you know, high HDI markers, human development indicators, we see uh, countries, uh, you know, their their natural habitat actually begins to improve because there's less uh, people uh, putting less stress on the environment as far as their needs and, and and the waste that they produce.
0: And what do we know about the countries that are on slight declines in terms of their population growth? Do we know why that's happening?
1: And, you know i think each country is a little bit different but i think in general it's when you see countries go through this and uh, um and hans roebling does some good uh you know videos o- online that you can look at he's deceased now but these demographic dividends that uh, you see these countries uh, transition through uh, usually it's it's you know those things i mentioned the the education the healthcare and i think a lot of it like for example japan has uh, shown a decrease in population a decrease in fertility. I think a lot of that is uh, driven by the high cost of living, mm. you know, the culture that they have in that country. It's a it's a, it's a, a small country. It's, I think, I believe, believe about the size of California, but, you know, uh, one third the population of the United States. Uh, so it's a, a fairly, you know, uh, crowded country as well.
0: Well, part of what complicates this topic, and you mentioned this earlier, is the fact that people in different parts of the world have different levels of impact on the environment. And perhaps you can shed more light on the specific numbers, but in general, we do know that people who live in developed countries use a lot more resources than those living in less wealthy countries. So with this in mind, how do we navigate this topic with the nuance that people do live different lifestyles and have different levels of access to the use of resources?
1: I think that the challenge again is when you look at the economic system as in the world as a whole our wealth is you know baked into the equation it's very difficult to change that wealth I think uh, economic growth is uh, something that is very difficult to pull back on you you see that with you know what happened in France when Macron tried to you know raise the tax on gas and and people revolted uh you know, you see uh, the Trump White House saying we don't want to be part of the IPCC because you know they see that uh, any additional cost to energy slows growth down, even if that cost to energy may trans transfer that energy from being carbon to non-carbon based fuels. So it's it's difficult to, you know, uh, I think change the growth impact, and and growth is being fixed as it is, and will continue to grow every year. It really leaves the, the population side. As being the variable that is, is 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 changeable, it doesn't mean we can't try and live uh, more ascetic lives the, the the developed world. But you know, I, I think here's a, a good example, uh, Cami, is uh, if I you know let's say I earn a hundred thousand dollars after taxes a year, but I choose to live on a forty thousand dollar lifestyle, what am I doing with that other sixty thousand dollars? Am I ripping it up and burning it, or am it. I? I'm saving it. Right. So what I'm doing is typically I'm putting that money aside for whether it's my kids education or or my retirement. And that money then is going back into the economy on the production side to help provide the capital needed for future growth for companies and for organizations to use that capital to grow. So it's it's very difficult for someone to reduce their, you know, uh, their economic activity, their footprint, just because of the, fa- the way the system is. So, you know, that's that's when you when you start to understand that you start to realize that we really need to focus on, again, uh, our numbers and, and look at that as the, 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 the more malleable or the more movable uh, factor in, in trying to get us to sustainability.
0: Mm. So do you think affluence and wealth in our world today pretty much equates with greater environmental impact?
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, if you look at the, all the studies out there, and as you said, you heard from an, uh, maybe another interview I did, when uh, you look at the, the lesser developed world, their emissions are may, you know maybe a one ton per individual of, of CO2 into the atmosphere. You know, the United States, the average American emits twenty tons, and it's because you know we have the wealth to buy the goods and services and use the energy, whereas someone who's you know living on you know a few dollars a day cannot consume as much. Hmm. So uh, unequivocally yes, environmental destruction is very much tied to the wealth of a nation.
0: This is really baffling. Why do you think it is that it feels like this ultimate goal that individuals and countries strive for happens to be one that works against our very own interests and health and welfare and is there is there a possibility of a world where affluence is truly tied to the abundance of things that mattered most?
1: that's a great question because i i think what you are hitting on or touching on is what we call externalities which is all this activity that you and i and we're all having amongst each other you know buying goods and services are there Third parties that are being impacted by that, and uh, negatively or positively, and in many cases it is negative. As we as we go about doing our our lives every day, we're you know putting up you know more carbon into the atmosphere. We're you know depleting the the fish resources. We're using valuable uh, water supplies. Uh, we're leveling forests to, to you know build our house or to use paper. So uh, there are externalities that on a finite planet we're starting to bump into those. So the key question is what can we do as far as what level of economic activity? Again, can we perform as a world where we stay indefinitely sustainable? And uh, it's again about right now. You know, economists think it's about 50% of where we are, which is a substantial decrease in, in global activity. It's just it's it's virtually impossible.
0: Mm. So how do we work with that?
1: <laughs> well, uh, again, I think the key thing is then we have to really be honest about you know how do we get to that sustainability, and we have to look at the benefits of smaller families and promoting that and many countries have done that. And, you know, we, we tend to think of the negative the negative ones because we've heard about them, you know, China and its one child policy, which is now a two child policy. And, and, and India went through a, a, a period of sterilizations that were forced. And, you know, those are egregious and, and uh, obviously uh, reprehensible. But there have been many, many countries that have, you know, through intentional campaigns, all in a human rights context, all voluntarily, had wonderful population policies that have, you know, reduced fertility, reduced birth rates, and uh, really increased uh, many metrics and many of the indicators that you find in the, you know, uh, UN and the Sustainable Goals that uh, we're trying to achieve.
0: Mm. Well, given how obvious and impactful of a solution slowing down our population growth is, why do you think this topic hasn't garnered the attention that it deserves?
1: <laughs> Why do you think?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's, no, definitely, it's <laughs> definitely a more sensitive topic that people don't really want to talk about.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. It's a topic that is uh, not an easy one to have with a lot of people because of all the, you know, those uh, obviously those issues and challenges I mentioned before. But, you know, it deals with uh, sex. It deals with uh, one's religion. It deals with the economy. It deals with politics it's a it's a challenging topic for people to discuss. Mm.
0: So with that in mind, how have you been going about approaching your messaging and what do you think has been the most effective in engaging people and for this message to resonate?
1: Obviously for as you were just saying, for you know many people it's it's sort of an instinctive aversion to discussing it. Mm-hmm you know, whether, again, because of reproductive autonomy or, uh, you know, religion or politics or economics. But have you read or have you heard of uh, Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown? Yes. You know, he said, uh, let's take a look at the top 80 initiatives that we can do now to fix the climate, to fix climate change. And number six and number seven in his book were educating girls and family planning. And when you actually combine those two, they actually are the number one solution in reducing carbon from the atmosphere and fixing climate change. Wow. So I, I think if it's a matter of sort of helping people understand the impacts of, you know, if you're promoting educating girls, family planning and small families, it is the surest way, both of, you know, like ex- eradicating, you know, extreme poverty, it's probably the best way to create universal primary education, achieve gender equality and the empowerment of women you know, as I mentioned, reducing child mortality, improving maternal health, you know, all these great things come from, you know, having a, 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 a an ethos or a, a policy towards, you know, promoting smaller families.
0: And what are some things you think we can do as individuals to support
1: this? That's a great question. One of the things we're doing with Earth Overshoot is, you know, uh, acting as an education arm and an advocacy arm to sort of strip away the uh, fear and uh, be very transparent and honest about our, you know, our our environmental uh, predicament and how best to solve it and not be afraid to, you know, bring out of the closet uh, the discussion of family size because it is a, you know, a a private uh, and, and personal endeavor. Uh, So I think uh, uh, our goal as an an organization is to help people have that conversation, to connect the impacts of the environment from family size, as many studies show, and the benefits to it. And certainly from an individual's perspective, it's sort of like one plus one plus one. uh, You know, as you pass it down the line, you talk to people about this, the more people are comfortable talking with it, the more it can be mainstreamed and the more likely it is that, you know, we'll start to see uh, better changes towards family sizes.
0: And finally, I'd love for you to share your vision of a truly sustainable future, taking into account consideration of both population size and perhaps consumption habits as well. And also, what do you think we need most to be able to get there?
1: Well, as I you know, had mentioned, it, for 7.7 billion of us to live sustainably, it's a, a pretty minimalist lifestyle. It's, uh, I think, uh, something that no one really who lives above that level wants to wants to go there and anybody who's below it wants to live above it. So, you know, you know, David Piven tells a, a professor at the Cornell University and he and a bunch of his collaborators. You did a, a, a study on what would be the ideal, you know, population size that would both yield a a life that would be a good life for people but you know, basically a European lifestyle where, you know, you're living, you know, high. human development indicators, but not, you know, a significant uh, consumption of resources like the United States. And, you know, their figure came into about one and a half to two billion people, you know, would be a a sustainable lifestyle and a sustainable level for the world at at living at a high quality life. Um, So I, I think that is sort of the ideal goal. And, you know, it's interesting, we were, you know, at a billion people in 1800, you know, just 200 years ago. And you know, around uh, two billion in nineteen hundred, so it's it's not uh, uh, far off that uh, we can return to healthy numbers and live uh, you know good lives. But certainly, the implications for our, our freedoms of choice and for uh, sustainability do grow worse uh, as we you know continue to grow and, and use more resources.
0: And what do you think we as a society need most to be able to realize this truly sustainable
1: world? You know, we are, I think, the only species and again, I'm not a biologist, but I think we're the only species that has the ability to reason and think abstractly. So, you know, I'm hoping that we can, you know, before things get really bad, I'm hoping that we can adapt to new ways of seeing the world, you know, seeing each other with, you know, new values and ethics and that, you know, we start to put the systems in place and the structures in place and the expectations that, you know, will help us cope with you know the difficulties that you know do lie ahead, and uh, find happiness where it exists, and you know thrive as best as we can. I think as we you know tr- transition from uh, overshoot, because you know we will have to transition uh, because we can't continue to live beyond the carrying capacity of the earth. So hopefully we have the wherewithal and the the, the foresight to see that, and we'll we'll hopefully go in that direction. And then I, that's you know what what we're focused on as a, as a organization.
0: Have you downloaded the Buns app yet that I've been telling you about? Besides the fact that we can meet like-minded people near us and trade things like clothing, art, furniture, or plants through the app, we can also earn its currency called Bits. So if someone wants an item that you've posted but you don't want anything they have so you can't trade, you can also accept Bits coins instead. There are also daily short surveys that you can take from within the app that will also allow you to earn Bits. With this currency, you can then go on to purchase things that you want from other people or you can spend it at an increasing number of real-life local partnering businesses. So the more people we have on this free app, the more powerful we'll be in establishing communities of trade and also in getting more local businesses to accept our coins. To check it out and join the fun, just search for Buns in the App Store and hit download. And here's a pro tip. Share Buns with your friends through the app, and for every friend that signs up, they'll earn 100 Bits and you'll also earn 100 Bits as well. See you there soon, and for now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow?
1: I guess, you know, I surround myself with a lot of positive things, you know, affirmations, articles, books, and all that. But I think uh, from the population sort of area or space, I, I find on Facebook, population counts. Is uh, you know creative and oftentimes you know humorous postings that they put, and I enjoy their creativity. You know, in that same sort of space of population, I, I've listened to a comedian named Bill Burr who's out there in Los Angeles, and he's done some very funny monologues on overpopulation. So uh, I think uh, it's it's fun to kind of enjoy the humor and uh, help us to help us recognize where we can uh, make good change.
0: What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: I you know I, I repeat. The mantra to myself: What is right is not always popular, and what is popular is not always right. Mm. And so I keep trying to do the right thing. And you know, I guess what keeps me going is when you see someone, you know, when, they're li- when, they're, you know, when their eyes light up, and and they get it. You know, they they through uh, you know a, a civil dialogue understand the impacts of our footprint on the world, and they uh, they you know become a, a voice.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: (laughs) I sit at a desk a lot, but I am lucky. One thing is I date an amazing woman who is incredibly healthy. So I I guess by osmosis, I (laughs) I benefit from that relationship, whether – you know, she encourages me to go out for a run or a walk, or she likes to eat really healthy meals. So again, I guess I do by by default sometimes, and or makes me wear sunscreen in the summertime or even indoors. So I, I think that's a, a good good aspect of, of my health.
0: <laughs> What's one thing you're working on right now to live more sustainably?
1: For me, it's it's really investing my time and my income and wealth in our nonprofit to educate people on the most practical and feasible solutions to achieve sustainability.
0: What makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment?
1: I, I mentioned this before. I think it's, you know, I, I do feel that we are uh, sentient creatures. And I hope that enough of us, you know, a majority of us will really begin to see the impacts we're having on our world. And we're willing to have those conversations and talk openly about the impacts of, you know, our numbers on the planet and to address them in a way that is, you know, honest, transparent and humane and uh, thoughtful. Mm.
0: Well, we would of course love to keep learning from you and check out your documentary when it comes out. So where can we go to follow your work online?
1: Uh, we've got a wonderful website for the film called, well, it's 8 Billion Angels, it's 8billionangels.org. The trailer is on there as well. It's a really cool trailer, it's a great trailer that was done by uh, Empire Design up in New York City. We've you know got Earth Overshoot it has a great website too, it's earthovershoot.org. And uh, we're also uh, the same names on, you know, Twitter and Facebook. I think we're on Instagram. I'm, I'm a little older for some of that stuff, but I have a <laughs> director of communications that does all that stuff. And that's uh, really, really excellent. And we're on Twitter as well, at Earth Overshoot and at uh, 8 Million Angels.
0: Perfect. And what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: I, I guess I would ask your viewers, do you care more about political correctness or the environment? If it's the environment, you know, I'd say we have to all get together and, you know, come together as cheerleaders for uh, what I would say is a better, safer and less crowded and more sustainable world.
0: Green Dreamer, thank you so much for being here and for tuning in. Again, to access my weekly takeaways and suggested action steps to use from each episode, you can join me on Patreon at greendreamer.com support green dreamer is an independent multimedia platform and i'd really like to keep it this way so i just wanted to thank you sincerely to our patrons every little bit helps and i do really really appreciate it and thank you as well if you've gotten to share green dreamer with friends or write a review of what you're enjoying in the podcast app finally as we're wrapping up just remember now more than ever our planet needs your light to thrive so if you haven't yet hit subscribe and i will catch you later green dreamer